Welcome back to Over Here, the podcast from Outside in Music. My name is Nick Finzer, and today we are talking with the amazing composer and bassist from France. His name is Clovis Nicholas. Clovis and I first met several years ago. When I first moved to New York, he was a student at the Juilliard School while I was also there and uh, got to play with him a fair amount. And uh, he's just a super interesting guy he's done so many things in his life and just getting from the south of france where he was born to paris and then to new york is just a fascinating story and this week this is the week of february the 8th uh we had the interview today february the 8th i know this is coming out after that but clovis uh, was kind enough to talk to us on the day of his CD release concert. He played at Minton's in Harlem, the source of so many gre- great jazz uh, historical moments and the development of bebop, and uh, it's just a very important place, so I'm glad to hear that he is there. And his new record, Freedom Sweet and Sweet, is out on Sunnyside Records, so you definitely want to check that out. But without further ado, we're going to jump right into this conversation with Clovis. Today we're chatting with a great bassist, also based here in New York, Mr. Clovis Nicholas. I first met Clovis when we were students together at the Juilliard School. But uh, Clovis, could you give everyone a little bit of background about yourself and how you got to New York? Sure. Um, I'm a musician coming from France, as you can hear with my accent. And uh, I'm coming from the south of France, uh, near uh, Marseille, a region called Aix-en-Provence. And uh, I started playing bass over there as a self-taught musician mostly because there was no no uh, serious jazz education over there. So I I would uh, learn the tunes from the recording and transcribe some solos and uh, ask uh, questions around to the musicians. And uh, when I got better at what I was doing, which is playing bass, I moved to Paris. And I started working there with, uh, with all the musicians on the Parisian school, I mean, Parisian uh, scene, sorry. And uh, I would also play with Americans who were stopping by Paris, like I played with Brad Meldo, I played with uh, Ernie Watts, played with Vincent Herring, and uh, also with uh, Barry Lagrain, a lot of uh, musicians. And uh, soon... After that, I decided to move to New York because that's where my heart was and I knew that that was the best thing in the world. So I came to New York with a scholarship actually from the French Foreign Ministry and I managed to get a scholarship to study privately with Bob Hurst and Peter Washington. So. As I came here, I took a few private lessons with them, but they were not very available. So eventually, after a couple of years hanging on the scene, I decided to go to school to Juilliard, study with the master, with Ron Carter. And uh, that's where I met uh, you, Nick. Nick <laughs> uh Man, that's so amazing. So when you were in Paris working... And you got, what was it like to play with, you know, these American musicians? Like, that's an amazing, like, you know, beginning of your career playing with Vincent Herring and Brad Meldow. What was that like for you? And for me, it was, um, it was a great, it was always a, a little step higher than I was doing in Paris. 
what I was doing in Paris was great because I was playing with the same bands all the time, so we could build uh, a sound, a band sound together. I, I played a lot with uh, these two brothers named Belmondo, a saxophone and trumpet, and uh, we had a band sound together. And uh, I played a lot with Baptiste Trottignon, a French piano player, and same thing. Uh, uh, you can develop a sound, but every time I played with those um, American musicians, I felt like there was uh, a depth of knowledge of this music. Like they really, they really knew the repertoire and um, as simple as how to replay a blues. Mm -hmm. You would play a blues with uh, Vincent Herring and you know that no one in Paris plays a blues like that. <laughs> so there's a, there was a extra layer of history in the music when I was playing with the American musicians. And uh, when I played with Brad Naldo, it was just like something even more than that. He was, he was at the time, he was 26 years old. So that was for his um, album release for the first uh, for his first album for Warner, which was introducing Brad Meldo. Okay. And, uh, he was so good. So good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so were you always interested in jazz as a young musician or did you play any other styles before? Before, um, I was, uh, more interested in, I mean, I get interested in jazz pretty early, like around 15 years old. I was uh, going to school with uh, Sonia Rollins on my headphones, mm -hmm. and my friends were looking at me a little weird, like, who is this guy? <laughs> but uh, I would also listen to um, uh, to uh, more like a rock music, maybe book of my generation. I would listen to uh, um, Jimi Hendrix or Led Zeppelin or Guns N' Roses. And... Um, yeah, that was, uh, I had a little bit of uh, rock in my background, like ACDC and all the things like that. But did you ever, did you have any other career aspirations before moving to Paris to be a jazz bassist? No, I, I think it was, it came as a, um, what you would call a breakthrough. I was in my last year of uh, high school, and um, actually I was in a scientific, science section of the high school because in France we have to decide the two years before high school which branch we want to be in and uh, I was pretty good at science so they put me there and uh, our science teacher said you have to start to think about what you're going to do in your life and uh, I had no idea and I remember when I I just w was walking back home that day and I just said maybe that being a musician would be a good idea and uh that just opened a new world. And uh, I felt like as soon as I had this thought in my head, that was it, that we, he was never going to go away. And uh, I just had to figure out how to become a musician because, as I said, like the school uh, scene was not that great. I would see musicians coming from uh, French and uh, south of France jazz schools that were not even that good. So after that, it was a... A couple year transition to uh, figure out how to make it from uh, amateur to the professional world, and uh, for me, it was like uh, eight hours practice a day until uh, until I succeeded. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. yeah. 
Well, I know that you're you have a, such a great work ethic. I'm sure you're still practicing eight hours a day now. Maybe not eight hours a day, but um, a good um, two or three hours a day, and uh, that would include uh, times. I would say like between yeah, less around three hours a day, and that would include time spent on the piano writing music. Amazing. Well, that's a great segue here to be able to talk a little bit about the record. So can, can you tell us a little about, a bit about the new record, who's on it, and the music? Sure. So the new record, I, um, I was a little bit pressed by uh, my label, Sunnyside, to come up with a new album. And um, I was not sure what I was going to do. But uh, at that time, I was doing a lot of gigs. I had a steady gig every Thursday, uh, playing um, with a pianoless quartet. It was two saxophones and a drummer and bass. And um, as I said earlier, when you play every time with the same musician, you cannot build a sound uh, for the band. So I thought that might be a good idea to explore that. Um, and um, once I decided on the instrumentation, I um, I thought about it and I tried to find uh, who would who would be playing on it, like what would be the musicians on the record. And um, I put a list of um, musicians that I like on the paper, and I um, I tried to mix and match and. Uh, when I put the four, four, four names that you see on the album, which are uh, Brandon Lee, Trent Stewart, and Kenny Washington, plus uh, on guest uh, Bruce Harris, when I saw all these names together, I thought that that was going to be that's uh, that clicked for me. So um, that was the second step. First step, I found the instrumentation. I mean, I chose the instrumentation. Second step, I chose the musicians. And the third step, I wrote the music with those musicians in mind. So I really had that in mind. I was trying to picture in my ears, I would say, uh, how would uh, Kenny Washington and Grant Stewart and Brandon Lee sound together and uh, write some tunes accordingly and write one Latin tune or write uh, one blues, uh, write... Um, a bit more uh, angular uh, type of melody. So I did that with the sound of the musicians in mind. And um, then I organized a tour in uh, Europe, in Switzerland, uh, London, and Paris. And I couldn't hire those musicians, but I hired those, some local musicians. And um, as I was uh, playing those gigs, the saxophone player over there, uh, whose name is Lucas Toll, who played on my uh, first album, he suggested that we should try the Freedom Suite, Sony Orleans Freedom Suite. So I thought it was a good idea, and I wrote the arrangements, because uh, as you know, the piece is, was uh, initially written for saxophone, bass, and drums, so I had the trumpet part. I wrote the arrangements, and we played it a uh, few few concerts and it sounded great on stage. It felt great and uh, I thought it was a nice addition to the repertoire. So that's how I decided to include that in the repertoire. So what you hear on the album is um, 
a bunch of originals, which would be the side A, and uh, the Freedom Suite, which would be the side B. Ah, nice. So did you guys end up pressing any vinyl so you could have side A and side B? Um, I was thinking about it, really, actually. Uh, but um, the cost uh, yeah. uh, stopped me and um, I, uh, my label and also my sound engineer uh, warned me. They said, like, it's going to be nice for you to do, but it might cost you, like, at least 2500 for 200 uh, vinyls. Right. And you might only sell uh, 30 to your friends and family, and uh, that's going to be... So they were not very encouraging about <laughs> doing that, but uh, I would have liked to, yeah. So did you have, I know you were saying that you were listening to Sonny Rollins in high school, so did you have like kind of a long historical relationship with that record, Freedom Street record, or was that yes, something? Yes, yes. I must, uh, the first, my my first jazz concert ever was uh, Sonny Rollins, actually. My father t- took me to see him uh, when I was 14 years old. And um, and when I was in high school, I would listen to a lot of, yeah, a lot of the Sonny Rollins uh, stuff, the Live at the Village Vanguard, the Freedom Suite, the um, uh, Sound of Sonny, um, Sonny Rollins Volume uh, Volume 1, Volume 2. So it's always been um, uh, in my, um, in my, Listener history. Sonny Rollins always been there, and um, so it, it, it's not like something that I discovered a year or two before doing the, the recording. Gotcha. So, was there? I know Kenny Washington obviously is a you know master that we all as musicians look up to, and I'm curious if he brought any anything to the session that you were surprised by or that you learned a lot from. Uh, by working with him, I know you've worked with him before, but working with him on your own project as opposed to uh, maybe some musicians of our generation. Oh yes, I must say, um, um, first point, like he really learns the music. Once he's committed to your project, he's uh, he's very serious about it. So he asked me to send him um, MP3s more than charts. Mm-hmm. And uh, as uh, the recording session was uh, getting closer and we would spend more time on the phone, I was on the phone with him and he could whistle the whole tune on the phone. I was telling him, like, on this tune, maybe we should do that like this and like that. And he would uh, answer, which one? And I say, oh, this one it goes. And he, he would whistle, like, the first four bars and in tune because he's got perfect pitch. So that was like he really knew the tunes almost like if we went on a on a tour for three weeks. Yeah. Wow! So that's that's something that uh, I was uh, impressed by. And um, another thing is when he goes to the studio, he brings his own drum set, including the hardware, everything. Like he really he doesn't leave any chance to. Uh, playing on a lousy drum or with a maybe bass drum pedal that doesn't work the way he likes or and he shows up in the studio an hour before everybody and uh, he works on the sound with the sound engineer he goes back and forth from the drum booth to the uh, 
on board and uh, he explained those guys exactly what he wants, where to put the microphone. And um, that's something that I think he's, um, that's the reason why he sounds uh, always the same on the, the recording. He leaves very little things to uh, uh, random uh, random events. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he also came to the mixing session. Like he oh, was wow. insisting, like I want to be there for the mix. So uh, he was there for the mix. Wow. And uh, another thing that I would say that um, I've learned from him is when he plays in the the, in the studio, is like you can tell, like every beat he plays, he's so into it. It's not just uh, cruising. He's just sweating the whole session, even if it's a ballad, if it's a slow tempo. He's sweating. He's uh, he gives like 120 percent of his heart to the, the music. So it mm. it brings a whole different energy in the studio. It feels like it makes everything very easy and very uh, intense at the same time. Yeah. What? Yeah. Well, I think that the music on the record definitely speaks to that. Um, What's uh, so now that this you've done? I mean, this is your second record for Sunnyside. I forget if you've had a had a record before that or not. But uh, after doing it a couple times, is there anything that you could share with you know musician audience that about making records? That's something that you learned uh, this time around. Um, yes, I've learned that. Um, um, I would uh, I would go for two days in the studio next time. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. For my first album and my second album, we did just one day, and um, it's it's good to do one day. It keeps the you have you have the focus. But um, I think the next time I will do two days and um, um, be a little less uh, uh, have a less on my plate for this one day when you have to think about uh, the arrangement, the musicians, the sound, the sound check, the setup, the, uh, the tunes, all of that. In a, it's a little bit uh, a little bit too much, I would say. I, I can do it, but uh, I'd rather have two days and maybe give less pressure on the musicians, like do um, six hours the first day and maybe not record everything and come back the next day and finish it up, or maybe one day and a half. That's what I would do. And uh, besides that, um, it's nice to be as much prepared as you can, like not trying to come up with some arrangement in the studio, Right. which uh, I tried to do as much as I could this time, because um, you have to know how many courses you want to take on a on a tune and uh, you have to time it in advance so you don't you don't do a take in the studio and it sounds great but uh, it ends up being like seven minutes and a half and uh, it's going to be a little bit too long so you you would either have to edit on the mix or do another take so the best way is just to say okay on this tune you take two chorus i take two chorus Etc. So then, really plan it so everybody knows what they have to do, and uh, that's something I learned from this one. Mm-hmm. And um, I've also learned that um, I've used the same mixing uh, engineer for both albums, and I think there's a 
consistency in the sound, even though the band is uh, different. So that's also something that maybe for the next one I will still use the same guy. Sure. So, so it keeps some sort of uh, uh, aesthetic, like the same as I guess in the 60s where they would always use uh, Rudy Van Gilder and then they have the same same sound. After after two albums, the guy knows what I want. Sure. Uh, I even I'm I'm even thinking that the next time I don't even want to be there for the mix. <laughs> I know, <laughs> he knows me, I know him. I say, okay, here's the file. Do your thing. I know you're uh, you're on the same page as me. So rather than starting all over with somebody new that I've heard from a recommendation and then explaining the whole thing again, I'd rather use the same guy and keep this uh, relationship. Yeah, man, totally. So, what else? Uh, what else are you up to these days? Do you have any concerts coming up for this music, or or other things that you're up to? I have uh, my CD release concert tonight at Minton's in Harlem mm-hmm. that I'm very excited about, and um, it's going to be with uh, Grant Stewart and uh, Bruce Harris, both on the record. Grant Stewart on saxophone, Bruce Harris on trumpet, and um, Alan Kimmel on drums, who studied with. Uh, Kenny Washington, and I think he's a great. Uh, he's going to be a great uh, uh, addition to the band. And besides that, uh, I'm playing at Smalls this uh, weekend uh, with a band led by uh, saxophone player Frank Basile, who uh, transcribed and arranged a whole bunch of music uh, written by trombonist Slide Hampton. So right. we are going to do, uh, it's also going to be a, a band with no piano or uh, guitar. It's um, two trombone, two trumpets, and uh, two saxophones. So that's going to be my uh, piano-less uh, long weekend. Starting yeah. Tonight. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we'll also be playing with, uh, actually with Side Hampton later on this month at Smalls. And, Amazing. Uh, and then I'm going to Europe to play uh, some uh, Steel Ready concerts with my band too. That's uh, what's on the um, what's on the uh, agenda for me right now. Amazing. Well, Columbus, what's the best place for people to find the record so they can listen and uh, hopefully purchase it? I think uh, you can find it on Bandcamp, which is a platform that I like, especially because. You can choose from a, a digital format or a physical format, and there's a whole um, there's a um, the whole press release there, so you can read about the the, the album and know a bit more uh, what's what's about, what the tunes are about, and um, that's one platform. Otherwise, the the, the usual ones, iTunes and um, Amazon and uh, Sunnyside website and uh, I don't know your favorite uh, record shop but I don't know there's not many left in New York so I don't know I don't know if you're here if you listen to this uh, interview from uh, somewhere else maybe you have your own record store that you want to go to excellent well Corvus thanks so much for taking some time and uh, thanks for the music man I've really been enjoying the record Thanks. I'm really uh, uh, thankful for you to share this uh, your enthusiasm because I have a huge respect for you and your music, and uh, it means a lot from means a lot to me. 
and that's Clovis Nicholas's new record, Freedom Suite in Suite, out now on Sunnyside Records, a great record label. And you can find that if you go to Sunnyside Records' site, you can find Clovis's uh, record available there through their Bandcamp store. And also, if you want to check out ClovisNicholas.com, there's no H after the C. It's N-I-C-O-L-A-S. So I hope you've enjoyed a little bit of this conversation with Clovis, and you'll be inspired to check out Sonny Rollins' Freedom Suite, as well as some other chordless groups. Some of my favorite records are also chordless. I love that Jerry Mulligan sextet, uh, introducing the Jerry Mulligan sextet with Bob Brookmeyer. And uh, there's lots of great music with uh, no chords. Jerry Mulligan, Chet Baker, lots of good stuff out there. So Clovis is following in their footsteps, and unfortunately you're going to miss his CD release performance tonight. But go into Clovis's website, and if you're based in Europe, he's headed your way very soon. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>